The following is an encore presentation from the Veritas Vault. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world. And a warm welcome to an encore presentation of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I hope everyone is having a nice holiday season. And when I say warm welcome, I really mean it. It seems to be cold everywhere, even in Egypt that received a snowfall they haven't had in over 100 years. But tonight I'm rebroadcasting a classic from 2009. Even today, five years later, I still receive emails about this show with the late Dr. Fred Bell. Dr. Bell was born in 1942 and died mysteriously on September the 25th, 2011, after filming a segment of Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory. In fact, I know someone who witnessed Dr. Bell and governed the Ventura, speaking while Bell allegedly gave Ventura some important documents. Was Dr. Bell too close to the truth? It seems like it. Dr. Fred Bell was a Pandora's box, and you never knew what you were going to hear. You may have heard tonight's interview. If you haven't, you're in for a treat. And if you have, you'd be glad you listened to it one more time. Again, I want to wish all of you a great holiday season and a happy and healthy new year. Dr. Fred Bell is the author of many books, most recently a bestseller called Race of Truth, Crystals of Light. He is a former NASA scientist, and he worked with the late Werner von Braun. 
He was a consultant to over 3,000 high-tech companies before he started Paradigm. Today, although he is in celebrity management and the film industry, he still runs the company Paradigm and still has governmental ties. At age 14, he went to work for the government on a project called MKUltra. Dr. Bell is also a musician, music and film producer. He believes music and imagery will get the word out quickly. He is also very much involved in project awareness. Today, Dr. Fred Bell is a practicing naturopath, scientist, environmentalist, inventor, performing world-class musician, internationally known speaker and founder-operator of Paradigm Inc. His upcoming book is called The Insight Track. And joining us directly from California, Dr. Fred Bell. Hello, Dr. Bell, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Yeah, hi, Mel. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. We're doing fine over here. We're writing the book that we're discussing. <laughs> you have a new book coming out of here. Yeah. And to be, to be quite honest, Dr. Bell, there's so much experience in your resume that it was hard to put a title on this show. That's why I announced, I announced it as Dr. Bell, NASA rocket scientist, inventor, and healer. But to that, we can add musician, practicing not naturopath. What else? Um, let's see, musician, naturopath, author, um, I don't know, comedian. <laughs> <laughs> is that a new, a new aspect, or well, is that I've something? Always tried to, this, these facts are so dry that I've always tried to present them uh, in a humorous way. I'm so tired of the emotional strain that uh, response that's invoked when people lay out all this negative stuff. Because the reason I, only, reason I lay it out is so that I can show you what you got to fix. Otherwise, if you don't know it's broken and you don't fix it, you might end up, you know, in one of these new 800 concentration camps at some point in the future when they open up for business. Exactly. And, you know, I tell the audience that I conduct this inter these shows very seriously because of the, the topics. Uh, a lot of times, you know, the fear of ridicule, the giggle factor, if you put some humor. But it's very important to have humor. Dr. Bell, as it's customary on this show for first-time guests, please take us all the way back to your childhood and tell us how life developed through today. As I mentioned while reading your, the small portion of your bio, at the age of 14, you went to work for the government on a project that some of us know us a bit about called MKUltra. Take us from there. Well, I was working with... Um friend of mine at the University of Michigan named Stephen Everball, and we developed um, some of the first neurostimulating equipment that's used today to help people get off drugs and obviously as a form of mind control, which is unfortunate, but things always get turned around. And the government was interested in our work at the University of Michigan. I, I went on from there. Uh, this equipment is what uh, was, was, was used in MKUltra. I wasn't a MKUltra subject. I was uh, an instrumentation person there, and um, and then uh, the government wanted me, so I went in the Air Force, um, and then I finished my education uh, and got equivalent of a master's degree, and later on I got equivalent of a PhD in homeopathic medicine. My friend Stephen Eberbaugh and I both went to NASA. He was, in, I was in charge of building the spacecraft and launching them into space, and he ended up uh, developing guidance systems for satellites. And then uh, I left NASA along when well, I went to the Air Force, was involved in the UFO cover-up, and then... By the way, Dr. Bell, I don't mean to interrupt you. Do you hear a sound 
it's a sound. Is it mind control sound that's coming through your phone? I see a little uh, sound coming. Do you hear it? No, I don't hear anything. Okay, I don't hear any more. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I do have wind chimes playing in the background. That might. There be- you go. Yeah, there's some. I got the door open, and we're on a mountaintop, and the wind is blowing. Okay. And there's some wind chimes over there, and they're ringing pretty good today, actually. And I've got the. Uh, I've got my I've got one of my Lockheed Skunk Works hats on, which I used to work there, and I I got my bird on my shoulder, one of them, and he's chewing the hat, so you might get some <laughs> crunching sounds from time to time. But uh, I went uh, after the Air Force and the UFO cover-up stuff. I went to NASA and did all kinds. Of, worked on everything from Star Wars to Apollo to Saturn, and then I went I left that and uh, visited uh, three thousand companies for about seven eight years. Every Navy lab, Atomic Energy Lab, IBMs, any company that you can name that had technology, I went there because I was trained in metrology and I was a uh, instrumentation uh, expert. So anybody that had any experiment going on needed me to make some kind of, you know, deductible results from, you know, in, in quanti- qualitative analysis. I left that, I sold that company, and then uh, uh, started meditating with Tibetan masters. Uh, what got into the you know the Eastern philosophies to study those and meditation practices and yoga practices. Then I started Pyridine, which uh, we make a lot of different things that counteract the negative things that are going on today. And I started Pyridine almost 35 years ago now, so we've been in this business for a long time. The process of doing that, I've you know played a lot of music, released five albums, uh, three books. And got a bunch of patents and and uh, got my own radio show over at bbsradio.com, which is Friday nights. Right. And uh, um, and here I am talking to you. <laughs> How did the government approach you? You were about, what, 15 when you yeah, went to work for the to government? Take, well, first of all, they approached me in the lab over at the uh, University of Michigan when I was working for Dr. Katz. He was... he's. He's just recently uh, uh, died, and he uh, was part of Hitler's organization, came over here in Operation Paperclip. And he was one of my teachers in high-energy particle physics. And um, so not too many 14-year-olds or 13-year-olds are doing high-energy particle physics, but I was, and Stephen Eberbaugh was. And uh, So you actually work with two Paperclip people. Yeah, well, Von Braun and him, yeah. Right, okay. Actually, a lot more than that. This is two you'd know. I probably work with fifty or sixty overall, but it's another story. So anyway, um, huh. so anyway, they 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 came to my parents and they said that I was being uh, vetted for a secret clearance. My stepfather really didn't get off on that, but my father he didn't know what to think of it out here in California. My stepfather was was in Michigan then, and so then my my stepfather moved down to Arkansas, and the government would have no part of that. So. Um, they immediately put me in the Air Force after about 12 months, and I was 16 then, and uh, I couldn't wear a uniform because I was too young, and they right. officially, even though they were paying me and billeting me, they officially could not say I was a government employee until my 17th birthday, so I got billeted or put up in, or in, at the Little Rock uh, Army Base, the, bio wep- the biowarfare weapons labs there. And I got a good taste of that then from the guys that were taking care of me and kind of went from there, you know. I, I don't know. The CIA and the FBI both had approached my uh, parents 
mother and real father over different periods of time uh, while I was 15 years old. I guess they were being vetted, too. My dad already had a secret clearance anyway because he'd worked for the government himself before that. So I think they were more interested in my mother and stepfather living in Arkansas. So who do you think was watching you when you were at the, when you had that professor over you? Did you do you think he actually talked to somebody and said, "There's there's somebody here who's a"? Well, I, probably, but I had other teachers too. I went to classes at night, and uh, I was going there. I had a full curriculum I was doing during junior high. So I get off of high school, junior high at three, and I'd head over to the university till about seven, and then I do work in the labs. You know, sometimes late at night, sometimes before class, that kind of a schedule, and uh, for a couple of years, three years. And uh, so who knows? I mean, I didn't, you know, in those days they were after kids that were, you know, somewhat intelligent in certain areas, whereas today corporate people are after kids that are corporately oriented. So it was just a sign of the times. The Cold War was in full swing. Uh, we dropped a nuclear weapon uh, less than 10 years before that. Russia was obtaining one. Uh, Germany almost did. So kids that had, a, you know, particle physics and nuclear physics was really a place to be at the time. And obviously that's what I was going to major in. So, so that's how it all started. Dr. Bell, you were a contactee. Yeah, that came much later, though. Can you please describe your first contact and when and where it occurred? Well, that occurred in 1971 in Laguna Beach, California, on 3096 Nestall Road. The same road that George Dembski had previously lived on uh, huh. uh, back in the in the twenties when he was there. Of course, then it was a dirt road and it was a cabin. I had a paved road and a cul-de-sac, but that was still pretty wide open. And as a contactee, you had contact with Simjasi. Am I saying the name right? Yeah, Simjasi. Simjasi. That's a German pronunciation. Oh, Simjasi. Is he the same Simjasi Billy Meyer had contact with, or do aliens have common names like John? Same person. It was a female. So Billy Meyer claimed to be the only one to have contact with Simjasi, and I know of at least three other people, including uh, Sherry Steiger, who was Brad Steiger's wife, the author, well-known author. Sure. Who also had contact with me at the same time. Tell us more about your contact with Simjasi. Well, it started out as a visual, telepathic image and continued on to a um, verbal uh, image inside the head kind of thing with a physical sensation. Although today, because of the instrumentation um, that we have for mind control, I would be very careful if someone out there were to get those same feelings. In those days, the equipment that produces that effect now, which was designed to copy the effect that I had and then duplicate it into, into a phony feeling, which is part, uh, called Project uh, NASA's Operation Blue Beam. Huh. Yeah, that, that, that can be very deceptive now, but in those days, the equipment wasn't developed because I was working in the labs that were developing it at the time, and I knew exactly where that development phase of that you know, technology was. Dr. Bell, you're the second person that talks about Project Blue Beam. A lot of the guests I bring on don't even believe it, but I always discuss it with them. The Project Blue Beam I'm aware of, is that the holographs that can be displayed on the ionosphere? Is that what Project well, no, Blue Beam is? It, 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 it's, it's 
a gradual program. Um, it starts out with um, setting up the the internment camps, the 800 internment camps. Okay, and then after that, um, you mean FEMA internment camps? They're, they're managed by the federal federal emergency, emergency management. Group, but right. I mean, uh, this was all all goes back to Tavis Tavistock Institute, which was set up during the 20s by all the Bilderbergers and all those people. But uh, uh -huh. it starts there. And then what it does is it, the first phase of Blue Beam is it, it removes God from, well, first, the very first phase of it is to uh, set up, a, you know, make, uh, get everybody paranoid, create a, 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 a governmental banking system, which has been done now here, uh, to unite the European nations into one group, the Euro group, which has been done, to unite the, American, the Americas into one group, which they're trying to do, but they're having problems, mm -hmm. to... Um, to uh, remove God from the classroom, from the Pledge of Allegiance, off our currency, which has been done, to uh, move the emphasis off of Christian holidays like Fourth of July, Easter, etc., Thanksgiving, and then to I institute state holidays, which they have done, uh, which have no relationship to you know uh, uh, spiritual activity of the growth of this country. In which case, in those days, the government and the post office and the banks always closed, but everybody has to go to work because they don't acknowledge those days. Those are the early phases of it. The second phase is to set up these uh, institutions. One of the more fam famed ones is the one over in Indianapolis, which has, uh, you know, it was, was formerly an Amtrak repair facility, but it's a, it's a classic example because now it has furnaces <clears throat> for gassing people. It has a, a, a red, green, and, and a blue zone for unloading trains like Hitler had at, at uh, Treblinka. Hold on, hold on. But, uh, Dr. Bell, can you please repeat what you just said? Because sometimes we talk about this here, and of course everybody accuses us of, of conspiracy theorists. But can you repeat that again, what you just said about the furnaces and the lights? Okay. The, 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 you know, friends of mine worked there. I have clients all over the world, and friends of mine worked there when it was an Amtrak repair facility to be exact. One of them is a truck driver, and he's a very good client of mine. I'm not going to mention his name. He was there. They, he watched them install two-and-a-half-inch gas lines and put in two large furnaces before they fenced the place off, uh, and, and, uh, and the railroad spurs were left there. Um, the, um, they've been left there, and, and they were, there's, there's three unloading zones, which go three different ways through one-way turnstiles, if you want to get Definitely, you know. Yeah. So the the purpose of this is to a when people come in, the the lowest category is a person that's going to be not cooperative and, and destroyed. The second next category up would be somebody that could be psychologically uh, reprogrammed. The next category beyond that uh, would be uh, a person that would be um, a, a, a mind control or a, a medical experiment like they have at Fort Dix, which is the site of the fake swine flu. And, of course, the, and the final one is the organ donors uh, that will be placed on, you know, in a kind of a suspended state, and while they're alive, organs removed one by one until they no longer can keep them. You, you keep opening you you keep opening doors that I didn't want to open up, but I'm glad you did. I'll keep going with this, but I also want to talk about the swine flu, which I strongly believe was a designer flu or a laboratory made swine flu. It was flu. a laboratory flu, just like just like the the uh, AIDS was. I'm right. very familiar with the. I was going to put in my book how to make swine flu, but I decided uh, 
I'll leave the formula. It's not that hard to make this stuff. It's just cross-jumping genes from one, you know. For example, uh, uh, sheep have a Vishnu virus, right? But let's not talk about the the, the, the flu yet. Let's continue with what you were, you were saying about the furnaces well, anyway, and the train I mean, tracks. Okay, so yeah. anyway, as far as going back to um, to what we were talking about, um, the, the next step um, is to, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 after the detainment process starts, they're, they're, you know, before actually before the detainment process starts, the, in fascism is, is typical. It's what they do is they start attacking people like you and me that are protesters. Right. And if the American public or the public at large in the world uh, protests, then they'll back off. You know, it's the same thing they did with the flus. In 1976, they tried to make a shot at the swine flu, and they failed, so they backed off. Now they're repeating themselves 30, 20 years later. So that happens, and then um, then after that, um, when they when they find it, they'll, they'll keep pressing until they can finally the public doesn't object anymore, and then they of course then they they uh, you know they uh, initiate these these laws and start capturing people like ourselves and, and interning us. Then the next thing that they do, of course, during that time, is they poison people um, with everything that's in the supermarket, and then they hit hit everybody up with ELF uh, through these different uh, frequencies coming from the uh, KH series keyhole uh, series satellites. Um, and, and and all kinds of different uh, machines that use uh, uh, one of them is manufactured down here in San Diego and uh, you know they're they're all around uh, the companies so I've got them all listed in the book and so what happens is they uh, start creating anger in people and unrest in children so they throw the children on drugs the children come off the drugs and they have coming off the drugs the symptoms are you know the drugs themselves are made up of of, of cyclohexane cyclohexene and piperidine which is basically angel dust which places people in a hypnotic state, so they start living their dreams, and, they, and this, this, this led, of course, into the withdrawal of that to schoolyard shootings. And so, so therefore, the schoolyard shootings and the terrorism and the other stuff, uh, they start regulating more and more and more, uh, you know, constitutional freedoms away. And um, the next step, of course, is to remove the historical and educational programs and availability, and this is where the where they make power plays for the internet, which has already been uh, tried and still going on. Uh, they've already, uh, websites that have too much content are pulled down. For example, the government of Brazil posted a website showing all the military data on extraterrestrial intelligence. That website went down and stayed down in one day. Same thing happened when the French government released their information on UFOs. I got on there for about 20 minutes, it was gone. The next thing is a, is a scenario of natural disasters. Uh, for, forecasted in the Holy Scriptures in the Revelation uh, section of the King James Bible. Uh, an example would be to look at the to, to tsunami, to, to tsunami Institute's 2004 Indian Ocean right. affecting Thailand, India, and Sri Lanka killed 275,000 people. In 1993, the Ushiri tsunami off the of Hokkaido, Japan, killed 200 people. And, and you start going back and you look at the natural disasters from tsunamis, and and, that, and so they're they're starting to use earthquakes. Well, how do they use earthquakes? Uh, you know, natural disasters. Well, they they start to control through HARP. They start controlling the ionospheric layers. They start controlling the Earth's electrojet, which comes down through the North Pole, which then pressurizes the equator. And by flexing that, it creates a um, a, a flux in the uh, plate tectonics, uh, which then creates uh, you know tsunamis and earthquakes. And this is done, uh, and then, of course, when you have your 
your hurricanes like Katrina, that was manipulated because when you look at the uh, D and K layers of the ionosphere, uh, during a hurricane incident, it's very easy to manipulate them with the HARP projects. And it just goes on. I mean, where do you want to stop? <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk off for a second. So you believe that 2004 tsunami was manufactured as well as the 2008 China earthquake, which I've heard was a warning to China because they were planning to cash out on their foreign reserves or they wanted to cash out on their uh, treasury bills and so on. And it was just, you know, maybe, what, a month or two before the Olympics. Yeah, and not only that, um, they, they, the North Korea, we, we blew those satellites, Kim, jo Kim Jong-il's satellites up. We wanted his ships to get off the ground. We blew them up as soon as they got in the sky with our, uh, our system out in space, which I have a picture of how it works on my website over at BBS Radio. The actual, I have an actually Army, Army uh, demonstration of plasma, plasma jet uh, laser techniques that they use. And, and yeah, and, and the, 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 um, the Sri Lanka... Thailand uh, 2004 incident, uh, it also uh, registered a nuclear explosion uh, out in the ocean off the coast of, of India, in the Indian Ocean, and uh, that it was a tremor, that, and they don't, and, and that one they suspect was a, a nuclear, underground nuclear submarine launched underground nuclear uh, uh, explosion, which would have created that. So that, I don't think quite yet they can... Um, and create something that big with heart, but they're working on it. Um, they started working on it back a few years ago, about um, 1972, when uh, NASA launched the Eros and Eros B satellites uh, to go out into the layers of F1 and F2, and the F layer being the Appleton layer in the, in the uh, ionosphere, because they, they they're working with the uh, the, the solar radiation, the solar wind, which produces a huge amount of energy. If you got a wind coming in at a million miles an hour, with a each each proton having a thousand electron volts potential, uh, you're looking at billions of electron volts of energy that heart can shove into. When you shove that energy down across the the uh, top of the Earth, it goes down across the equator, put, put tremendous pressure on it. And it exits out through the South Pole from the Antarctica, and that's blowing a hole in the ozone. That's why there's a big ozone layer missing in the Antarctica because of what HARP Project does. Then now, I want to talk more about HARP and Katrina in a few minutes. Uh, but you mentioned the two holes. I've heard from some people who say the holes are actually on the North and South Pole. Is it potentially true that there may be entries to inside of Earth through those two places? Well, I don't know. I, I, I one time met... Um, I think his name was Charlie Bird. He was a, 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 a cousin of uh, Admiral Bird, who supposedly found these um, found these points where these entrances were were made. But as me being a scientist and not a full-on archaeologist, I really wouldn't have accurate information about the entryways. Okay. I've just heard rumors, probably like you have. I only talk about what I know to be a fact. You know, okay, so on, on, on interviews like this, let me talk about a few pictures I found. I saw a picture of a radar. Uh, I think it was one of your websites, a radar, and you wrote, "quote The big radar in the bag on the top of the hill was developed at Sandia Labs by General Electric, Westinghouse, and Sylvania, right? Along with the government, it had a range outwards of 450 miles, and detected alien spacecraft at the 776th Aero Squadron where I was stationed." 
Point right. Arena, California. I worked on this set here at this location. This radar brought down several theta reticulin. Reticulin. Can you pronounce that? Yeah, theta reticulin. It's reticulin. theta reticulin. It's a yeah. 38 light year uh, from here, a uh, place where these aliens live. Exactly. I just wanted to make sure because I've seen it pronounced differently. Uh, Seda Reticulin spacecraft, one known as the Roswell Crash during its development in the Alamogordo Valley of New Mexico. Yeah, that, that said, was back in the 40s. Right. That said, Dr. Bell, I always mention this. Can we equate our technology today, let alone back in the 40s, as stick and sticks and stones in comparison to what an alien race has? The mere fact they're here and we're not there wherever they come from, is proof of their advanced evolution. How is it that we can vector or shoot them down with our technology when you would think that their technology would render ours useless? Well, you know, the theta reticulans, you know, each race could be looked at differently, but the theta reticulans, they had a, a plutonium-based, very crude power plant, which we duplicated a long time ago, in our reverse alien technology work at Area 51 and uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. And um, the Pleiadians have a much more advanced technology, and the only way that we ever got our hands on any of it is because of some of the weapons technology that was given to us by the people from Theta Reticuli crippled a couple of their spaceships, specifically about three of them, which were placed in a Groom Lake facility but unfortunately for our government, which is great for the Pleiadians, and then me too, I think, you know, is that this technology, whenever the uh, operator of the ship um, is is interned or destroyed, like the Pleiadian ones, where they're putting it, they were putting in a pyrogenic crypts in, in uh, at uh, at uh, Wright Patterson, so therefore they had no connection with the hardware that they had been confiscated from them. They didn't have the signature patterns to make the spaceship do anything more than hover because those signatures, if they're not activated, self-destruct. And so they never were able to acquire the technology the Pleiadians had other than getting the ships to hover, and that's what Bob Lazar observed when he was down there at Groom Lake looking at these things in a hangar. And so, several other of my friends had also seen them. I wouldn't just go with what he had to say. I had a, several friends that were also there. So with that... Um, we, we have developed a lot of weaponry. Uh, it's still quite crude. We, you know, there's, there, are, there are STS missions that are on the YouTube and on the Internet where you can actually see from outer space the view of where uh, a beam of light goes out after some kind of a disc, and the disc will jump out of the way, and the beam goes by it. That's the Star Wars technology. That's in place now, and it has been for quite a while. I actually witnessed a shoot-down of a ship over Newport Beach, back about 10 years ago, and when the beam came down, I saw this UFO hovering out over the ocean, and this beam came from the top, meaning space, the white beam hit it, and it burst into a huge green flash, throwing uh, green sparks, which would be shrapnel, and the reason it was a green flash is because that ship was composed primarily of magnesium, a magnesium alloys, which makes it light, and so when magnesium burns up in the atmosphere, it produces a green flash. I've actually seen this stuff, um, you know. Well, that's 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 why I have you on the show because you can talk about any subject. Uh, you talked about the the platforms that actually shot that ship down. So they're actually yeah. positioned on uh, in orbit, not on the ground. Oh yeah, yeah. This this we have them. Um, the one that I have over on uh, my re my website at BBS 
back in my archives section uh, is the Army unit that was demonstrated shooting down missiles going out into space. That's the ground-based one. That's the Army. Uh, okay. the, 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 the NSA one, National Security Agency one, is, is located in space a couple hundred miles above the surface of the Earth. And that's the one that got this uh, reticulum ship. Once we, once we uh, uh, got this technology, we swapped this technology out with the, and that deal was put together in 1952 at Murak Field with President Eisenhower at the time, whom uh, now is called Edwards Air Force Base. Once that deal started, and, and the Indian, the uh, aliens started ha inhabiting all the Indian grounds, you know, which were, you know, basically foreign nations like the Hickory Apaches up in Hickory Gulf, Apache, Mexico. New Mexico, right? Yeah, they the, they got out of control. So they're in '79. They had a, a a fight up there, and and I'm familiar with it because I used to hang out with the Hickory Apaches. I used to do research with them, and I was been a, I was spent a lot of time on Archuleta Mesa and in some of those around those caves. There started a war between. Are you talking raids. about th th what Phil Schneider talked about? Yeah, and uh, what's his name? Um, Phil Snyder and uh, oh, what's his name that was over there had uh, had uh, that that uh, telemetry company over at the Kirtland Air Force Base. I'll remember his name in a minute. Who who took uh, uh, Myrna? Uh, what's her name out and got the first implants back when they were doing the implant programs? I'll remember his name. Uh, Paul Benowitz. Doc, yeah, Paul okay. Benowitz. Yeah, yep. He was he also exposed them, uh, and so. You know, as a result of that, we got into a war with them or a conflict, and it's ongoing now. And that's what what this uh, this new technology is all about: is blowing these guys up. Uh, and so you believe? Huh? So you believe there was actually the, the Dulce battle? Do you believe that was real then? No, there was because I was up there not too long afterwards, witnessed several of the ships, filmed some of the ships coming out of the ground. Uh, that's back when uh, Joe Randazzle had a magazine called UFO Review. We took a whole film crew up there. I had a, a, a treaty with uh, uh, Leroy Pesto, who was the acting president of the tribe up there, and we used to hang out uh, at the Best Western Inn, which is in Dulce, which is like a miniature Hilton. It's a beautiful, beautiful facility. It's nothing like you would think of Best Western. You'd think of something of as a Hilton. And we hung out there, and late at night we would go out with film crew, and film this stuff. We had I had uh, special Pleiadian music equipment that I developed, which I still use, and it's all battery powered. So we create these sounds that were not too harmonious, that would antagonize the Greys, and they would come out of the ground and go into space, and we'd film them. <laughs> we sat right on top of the uh, 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 the Archuleta Mesa, looking down into the valley because they'd come out below the mountain and go upwards, and we did it on a um, a military facility, which was a, uh, a satellite monitoring uh, 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 compound that was was abandoned during the or shut down during the winter, so we go up there in the winter. Are you saying that the sound, the Pleiadian sound, bothered them, and that's why they would leave their holes like rats? Uh, it's 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 a sound that I've created um, um, one of my synthesizers, um, and it's it's broadcasted at a very high power. It's not much, much different. It's like you could, you know, the, um, um, the, uh, well, there's, there's two, there's, if you remember back in, uh, in the, in the pirates down in, 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 uh, in, uh, 
the South African pirates coming out and grabbing a couple of these ships. Yes. Well, the technology on board, one of them is from this American, what's the name of the company? It's down in San Diego. They sell for about $35,000 a piece, and it puts out a sound that's directional. Yes, yes. it goes yes. right into your head, hit a mile away, and it can, you know, somebody five feet away from you won't hear anything, and it almost explodes your head. Mm-hmm. And this is the technology that we were using uh, on them at the time with not their same sound patterns. We were using a different sound pattern uh, than they use for these communication devices. The ones they're using from that company in San Diego um, is a, um, a sound pattern that uh, is in, in human speech range. We were r- running beyond the human speech range with our frequencies. Now, Phil Schneider, you remember his story remember his uh, scars, yeah. missing digits, and so on. A lot of people f- say that he was a hoax. I personally tend to believe, I, I'm a very good body language reader, and you know he, he never wanted to sell anything at all. He just wanted to inform and share the truth. What are your thoughts on Phil Schneider? Well, I didn't really know him that much, but uh, he reminded me of Bill uh, Cooper a lot. Yes, Bill Cooper, right. I, who I intimately knew, and I told Bill, I said, you know, when you, as I worked with the government, I went, I worked for them. I have friends there right now. And I tried to explain to Bill, I said, you know, we can go out and blast George Bush and blast the government and expose all this, but there's a line, you know. You don't cross the line where you get personal with the individuals involved. Now, of course, the line was crossed with Bush, but he, he was too dense to know it. But these other people, uh, chiefs of different agencies, you just don't do that to them. Because you don't last if you do. And that's what happened to him. I mean, I knew his, his Japanese wife. I remember when they had their baby. I remember when he wrote Behold a Pale Horse. I was one of the first yes. persons to ever read it. I was with him during, he, he would, I've been out with him when touring with him, and he'd, he'd get frighteningly drunk and start saying things that he shouldn't say in front of anybody that was exposing things that people just weren't ready to hear. And that's why he's not here anymore. I think that's what really hurt his reputation, the, the drinking problem. Otherwise, he would still be with us. Yeah. Well, the drinking problem is where he shot his mouth off and said things that he shouldn't. That was the way I looked at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you work with uh, Dr. Werner Von Braun, building the yeah, second stage of the Saturn rocket. By the way, we recently posted in our forum, FBI and CIA declassified files on Von Braun. Tell us about your experience working with Von Braun. Well... First of all, um, most of the time he had his entourage. His entourage were his SS lieutenants that were younger than him that came over here, probably uh, kids not much out of the Hitler Youth Movement that were in the SS. Right. And they were, uh, they, they kind of, they were like his bodyguards, if you can imagine that. So, so you're working with somebody with basically bodyguards. And so when he wanted something done, they were there to make sure you did it the way he wanted it done. Secondly, he had a lot of attitude. Um, That's why he died of cancer, because when he came over, they threw him in a compound in New Mexico, and up until the time Sputnik got in orbit, they didn't really listen to him. And then he had to kind of like bail the U.S. out of of our our dilemma of not being able to get, remember the vanguard, take two feet off the ground at Cape Canaveral, as we call it, and tip over and blow up, and then... Oh, yeah. I was out there during that time. I was out at Vandenberg Air Force Base when they were launching the Atlas missiles. They were one of my clients, and they, were, they weren't doing much better. They were blowing them up, you know, a few miles above the ocean right over, 
kind of were Santa Barbara almost. <laughs> and uh, the reason for all that was the fact that um, when we took over the well, actually, there, there were some caves in Pina Mundi, which was his grandfather's hunting lodge. <clears throat> South of that, about 20 miles, were the caves where they actually had the uh, Jewish people in there as slaves making these these U2, I mean V2s. And um, and as a result of that, at the end of World War II, uh, we got in there about three or four hours or five hours ahead of the Russians, and we uh, took out. Uh, a portion of the hardware and some of the software, but um, what happened was the, the part that we really missed was a pump. It was called a hydrazine pump, and that's a, a pump that pumps fuel down into the uh, into the engine. If you can't get the, en- the fuel in the engine, you can't develop the amount of thrust. When we were working, trying to get Project Corona going back in the in, right after the U-2 got captured by, you know, in Russia, in, I mean, in, in 55, 54, um, we couldn't get one pound in orbit. The Sputnik weighed, I think, what, 10 pounds, and a month later they put a dog in orbit, uh, which weighed 1,000 pounds, that satellite, and we couldn't get a pound in orbit. And the reason for that is because the Russians uh, ended up getting the hydrazine pump, and, they, and that pump was what put them ahead in the space race. And huh, Werner von Braun was furious about that because his counterpart, and I forget the guy's name, uh, was the Werner von Braun of Russia and, and led the, you know, the whole deal for a long time. Where they fell short was in their guidance systems. They couldn't get down on the moon accurately because their guidance systems didn't work. We, we caught them there, but as far as the uh, action of the spaceship's engines, they had us beat 10 to 1, you know. Is it true that von Braun said the first flying saucers were built in Germany? I presume that means. Yeah, they were. They they were uh, Victor Schomburg design, and it was the other guy. And what they did is they were platforms that would go when there would be a a, a bunch of um, uh, you know American bombers flying over or British bombers flying over. They would come straight up uh, into the into the into the into the squadron of the bombers and start firing in a circular manner and then go back down again. That was the very first one. And um, later on, of course, they developed some rocket planes, uh, but th- they ran out of pilots is the whole problem there. They just ran out of pilots. All those things were produced underground, way underground. They had uh, they had a, yeah, the saucers were produced underground, yeah. So if they were produced, they actually had alien technology. How did that happen? No, I don't think they had alien technology. Um, I, I think that they had, uh, you know, there was a, you know, the, 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 this is where you start dealing with uh, fields like around um, Lake Michigan. There are these what they call G fields uh, where gravity fields change. And, and originally it was observed, I think it was by Victor Schomburger, that um, uh, why, why, when a trout swims upstream, why doesn't he go uh, to the right and where the current is less? Why does he go out in the middle of the of the uh, of the stream and swim there upstream where it's much more current and what they discovered was there were temperature gradients that had to do with the water flow and the gravity of the water flow that led them to um, the Schomburg design and I've seen drawings of them and um, which I didn't reproduce in that book Rays of Truth Crystals of Light that you wanted to talk about it and reproduce those drawings uh, because it there wasn't enough room, but 
uh, it was a system that uh, somewhat utilized a jet engine for a, a source and used a plasma as a discharge. It wasn't the true, I call anti-gravity, but it was a system that uh, lowered the effects of gravity considerably. I don't really know all the mechanics of it, but because I never really had time to study the whole thing, but it wasn't extraterrestrial technology. Although Hitler had meant Pleiadians at one time, and that was where he got the idea of the Aryan race, because the Pleiadians are Nordic-looking beings, tall, thin, blue-eyed, you know, uh, fair-haired, and fairly good physique. Uh, he didn't work with them, but he did, like a lot of people, have, have, have met them, you know. So if that's the case that they were they built flying saucers, obviously they had more advanced technology than we had. I'm happy Hitler Hitler's regime lost the war, but if they had all this technology, what happened to it during the war? Well, we got we got split up between us and Russia basically. <laughs> For example, well, we'll just look at the uh, Hitler was uh, working with um, back in the 30s before the war started. He was working with mind control uh, in several of his prisons, and uh, they'd gotten quite a, they'd gotten pretty far along with some of their their developments. They are also working with uh, viral cloning, uh, which is used today. So a lot of those guys went to Russia. Um, so Russia ended up building all these things, uh, all these new early devices back in the 50s. The CIA ended up building them a little bit later and stealing a bunch of them from the Russians during the 50s. So the Russians got off on, on, on ESP and, and all those kinds of things. And our country just basically was working on gathering intelligence. And until Warner von Braun got going, uh, we didn't have much in the way of rocketry. And it wasn't really until the 70s that the CIA, uh, through all its sub-programs then, uh, was able to build uh, all these systems that do you know, things like the neuronic control of neurophone technology from Pat Flanagan and, and dual beam stuff that's, that's being used now to put voices in your head, et cetera, et cetera. So that really got kicked off in the 70s. Bad choice of semantics. Let me rephrase. If Hitler had this technology before losing the war, why didn't they use it? You would think that if they had more advanced technology, it would have been helpful to them to win the war. Well... They it would have, but they didn't really have a handle on it until halfway through the war, A. I see. And then B, Hitler uh, wanted to build, remember he was under World War II, II Treaty, he was not supposed to build another military, so he did it quietly. He, he quietly built a military. So he mean World War one on tanks and big cannons, I mean some huge big cannons, way beyond the average cannon that was used in the war. Cannons of the whole barrel took the side of a mountain to, to hold it. He concentrated right. on that. So as they started to lose the war, then he, he, he pulled his what he called airy fairy stuff out, and, but it was too late. You know, and they, they tried to get his, his scientists tried to convince him that at the beginning of the war that they should concentrate on this, but he says, no, we're going to spend our money making tanks, trains, ammunition, and blah, blah, blah. You can play around in your labs, but I'm not interested. This is too airy-fairy. We don't need it. Well, as he started to lose the war, and he also lost losing pilots. So <laughs> he had a he started hitting the technology pretty hard, but he didn't have anybody to, to fly the stuff when he did develop it. So actually, it came late in the war, and they just couldn't handle it. 
I remember having heard Von Braun say that if there is an alien invasion, chances are it will be the government, a false flag. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, that's getting back to, now you're back to the the, the Moonbeam Project, where they'll, uh, what's his name, Uh, General um, Jumper, General uh, uh, John Jumper, uh, recently retired, 2005, head of the Pentagon, made a big statement. Uh, I forget the, the, the periodical that John was referring to, but uh, he had worked at um, uh, Area 51. He'd worked at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. He worked at Bentwaters Air Force Base of his servitude to the American Air Force. And he said very bluntly that in the very near future, our technologies will create things that don't exist. People will see things that aren't there hear things that aren't there, and sense things that aren't there, meaning a very strong holographic weaponry. And he said that back in, uh, oh, what did he say that, around 2005, if I remember correctly. It's in my book somewhere here. But uh, but he he would have been the guy to know because he was the commander of a bunch of these, well, Kirtland Air Force Base was director of Area 51. I mean, he's the guy. He was, you know, the top five, you know, four-star general when he retired. Look him up on the internet, some of his statements. Well, but what is it that they say? Advanced technology may be indistinguishable from magic. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. And so they got out of the hologram stuff. And in my work, you know, my developmental work that I'm doing, forget the book for a moment, is I've developed equipment that does produce holograms inside your consciousness and outside the world that we use and sell today at Paradigm. We actually manufacture this stuff. We, I knew about this. We were working with quantum tunneling and quantum uh, field effects. God, in 81, you know, that's when we started developing the, what we call the, the projector. Uh, we didn't get, the, the, the te- unfortunately for us, the technology to create it and get it on the mass market where we're at now um, took 20 more years, and we weren't, weren't up to get it, couldn't get any off the... Out, you know, out the door until about two, three years ago. It took us 10 years just to develop the computer programs to do the tooling, but we did it so we can counteract all this stuff. You know, that's what, what I've done. So I'm putting this book out now to show people what we can make not happen if you, want it not, if you don't want it to happen, how to separate it. Because the way it is now, you could be meditating and there'll be a voice in your head and you think it's God or your higher self and you're just uh, some guys in a lab just laughing because he's got your emotional oral... Uh, register, and he's either beaming down a satellite or he's a couple miles away using some other uh, detecting devices and talking to you through the wall of your building. So, Did you ever did you ever see the movie Strange Days? I think I did. It's been a while. It's, I don't really remember it, but I remember seeing it. I'd have to go it's back from, and look. From the, it's for, for the listeners, it's, it's a very underrated movie from the 90s. And basically, it's in the future. Instead of you, for example, buying a DVD or a CD... You buy this little, looks like a disc, you connect it, you connect it to your to your head, and basically you're experiencing in 3D all the emotions, all the experiences. Is that more or less what you're selling? Well, yeah, but it's, it's beyond that. You know, when you work with quantum entanglement, you have to. We've developed devices that resonate um, into the hologram. I mean, uh, Richard Feynman sort of stuck... On a, but, uh, David Bohm, the physicist that died in 1992, both very famous, um, <clears throat> Feynman being famous for 
the Challenger disaster and, and working out on the atomic bomb and, and, and getting a Nobel Peace Prize in QED, quantum electrodynamics, and Bohm mm-hmm. uh, almost getting a Nobel Prize, both agreed that the hologram, uh, the electron in the body can connect to the electron in something else, releasing photons. Photons makes it visual and makes it conceptual. And so um, we develop devices that cause entanglement, you know, and I've demonstrated, and we sell them. One's worn and one's a device that sits on a, uh, on a, on a stand and it's uh, activated by lasers. And uh, we sell them all over the world. People have gotten... And we saw them word of mouth, and and people have gotten tremendous results uh, from them. And they're not cheap, so people wouldn't buy more of this stuff and spend a lot of money if these things didn't work, and they do work. So yeah, let's say let's talk a moment about past lives. I saw a picture of you in the ninth grade. That was when you first got involved with government at the University of Michigan. In Steven Spielberg's miniseries Taken. By the way, I have the miniseries, and it's outstanding. You were portrayed in the third episode entitled Jesse. Yeah, Jesse and and with and Jesse and what's the other kid's name? There was two of them. Um, yeah, I was portrayed. Um, trying to remember how that whole scenario happened. I don't remember, but it was a great miniseries. Two years after this picture was taken, you were in the military. Yeah, it was Jesse and Jacob. I think was the episode. Jesse yeah, and Jacob it was the third the third one. I was portrayed in that. Uh, that was. Those were whiz kids in the in the movie. Uh, that was Steven Eberbaum and myself in real life that created some pretty amazing technology um, that was <clears throat> somewhat related to extraterrestrial technology. For example, in 1954, the average portable radio, or 53, the average portable radio um, consisted of an A and a B battery, which was the size of a telephone, and you know, a regular telephone, and then another big box that they went in, that was a portable radio. Stephen Eberball and myself developed a transistor radio that would, was about the size of a mouse on a computer and played it in a drugstore on Frederick Avenue in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, all different stations, as loud as they could handle it. And this little tiny thing, and you couldn't even see it was in our hand, which the Japanese later on made a big thing in the late 50s and early 60s of the transistor radio. We, we developed the very first one. We also developed the very first brain neurostimulator. It was later used by the CIA in the late 50s. We built the very first one. You know, the, um, the, uh, what else? Oh, the oscilloscope that we developed uh, and the, and the hypnosis techniques were also used later on. And some of this technology, of course, was used in the case of Candy Jones and in the case of some of these other women that, and guys that were... Uh, really Manchurian candidates uh, and performed that way. Uh, split personalities, one not remembering the other one and, bo- and one being pro- programmable by hypnosis to do things far away. So we developed the equipment to do that kind of stuff. And that's what, what Spielberg got into. So how did Spielberg get a hold of you to, uh, to portray you? Well, he didn't get a hold of me to portray me. My, my, my earlier... Excopades uh, uh, were in the first series uh, that Chris Carter knew about, called the X Files. X Files, sure. Yeah. yeah, and so it all it all came from back in the days of the of the in '79 and, and '80 when we had a Pyridine had a a very high profile in Century City, uh, California, where all these movie guys were at the time. Uh, that this was their corporate headquarters. We were there with our corporate headquarters, 
and we pretty much dazzled them with all kinds of stuff that we were doing up there. We They had a thing called the Century City News, and I was sometimes on the front page of it with some of my es ex escapades. So that's where it all started, I believe. I don't really know. I mean, who knows how they get all this information. I know that Sean Morton, later on when I met him, he dug into it a lot. He spent a lot of time around Chris Carter might have, and, and Spielberg. It might have come through him. And on, on top of that, um, Spielberg was par part of, as I was, Project Awareness, uh, which was the, the secret government's uh, program to release uh, a lot of this UFO and alien information to the general public to, right. through films and the entertainment. So Interesting enough, I, w I wanted to ask you that question. Do you believe that uh, X-Files... Close Encounters, uh, even E.T., you think those are acclamation uh, initiatives by the government to start releasing stuff and then mix it with... Yeah, and then mix it with bullshit, what they do, but yeah, exactly. that's what, that's, I know this. I know for a fact that that's what those programs are. I know that for a fact. I don't have to guess at that one. Yeah. And another picture I saw of you at the Garden in Germany. You were you said that uh, you were visiting because you had a past life there. How did yeah. you find out you had a, a prior life in Germany? Yeah, I did. I I, I worked uh, I worked uh, in the Third Reich until I was assassinated uh, as uh, one of the guys that I was an archaeologist and and one of the things that I did is uh, when they took the Louvre down in Paris uh, when they captured recaptured France in World War II in the beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. They had 4,000 paintings that I looked at at Burtis Garden, and about 3,000 of them were fakes. So Hitler gave the fakes over to, uh, to um, uh, what's his name, the Air Force guy. I um, remember his name in a minute. Uh, and, and, and in the Air Force, and they, I went his name, I can't remember his name right now, my God. So anyway, uh, um, not Hess, but what's his name? Um, and okay. I gave him to the Air Force guy, the guy that ran the Air Force. And when he got captured at the end of the war, when Montgomery came in, they captured him at Bernstgarten. He was loading up the fake paintings and tried to head out to Switzerland on a train that they had stashed down there, and he got caught with them. And, um, you know, it's a lot of interesting stories. You know, very interesting. Now, yeah. let's talk, take a moment to talk about weather manipulation. You said, quote, Hurricane Katrina was created due to the following conditions. Weather is created in a region above the Earth's lower atmosphere in an area called the troposphere. And it goes right. on and on and on. For the non-scientific mind, Dr. Bell, can you please explain how a hurricane is created? And I'm not referring to how they're created near the coast of Africa. I'm talking about how they're enlarged and directed as a weapon of mass destruction or even war. Well, yeah, the, the hurricane is created between uh, warm water and cold air, first of all, which mm -hmm. creates a vortex. Right. And what happens is uh, all of these are created in the lower atmospheres of the Earth, to keep it simple. When, 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 when you have sunspots, you know, a particular sunspot, they move across the surface of the, uh, of the sun in a 27-day cycle. And what happens is, uh, during this movement, it creates a high or a low solar wind. A low solar wind, uh, the solar wind comes into our uh, into our mag um, into our uh, Van Allen radiation belt at 800,000 miles an hour. In a high solar wind, it comes in at about 1.4 million miles an hour, with billions of electron volts of potential. So what happens is, if you use HARP, which creates a a, a a virtual antenna 
and you direct heat uh, onto the uh, hurricane where it's being created out in the ocean, usually the Atlantic, it will speed up the process by warming the water more because it's directed at the water, and it will speed up the intensity of the hurricane. That's why we now have magnitude, you know, five hurricanes. Right. Then what you do is you start manipulating the heat around the hurricane, and you can move it to the right or left. You heat it up on one side, it'll go the other way because it wants to, it wants to follow a cooler air. Right. And uh, so what happens is, um, because if it gets into hotter air, it's going to neutralize to the hot, to the water temperature. So by creating uh, air temperature air temperature differentials, you can move the thing around. So if you remember in the Katrina uh, uh, hurricane, um, it first went headed towards Florida, and then it was moving off to the right to go away. Suddenly, it reversed course and went straight down to Louisiana, right down the road to New Orleans. If right. you look at the sunspot, it was coronal discharge 182, I believe. I forget what coronal. There, these coronal discharges are numbered. I think it was CNS 182. It has the exact pattern of the course of the um, uh, Hurricane Katrina inverted 180 degrees. And what I mean by that is if you were to take a... Uh, a, a slide, and you didn't have a lens that corrected the projector and projected the wall, image on the wall, it's going to be upside down or 180 degrees out of phase. So looking at the, as a positive track as the corona, uh, corona 182 versus the backside of it, the flip side of it, which would, would be the reverse of it, 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 it outlined the program. Now, with, with it outlining the, the, the course of the of the uh, path of the hurricane being the same as the other, uh, you can get a lot more energy that way. And that's what they were doing. They were pulling the energy down from the solar wind that goes through the Earth's uh, uh, electro-oral jet through the north pole of the Earth. And then they, from there, they, they directed it easily down across because it was north equator. It was like a no-brainer for HARP. And uh, they were able to play around with it and actually increase its intensity. And... That's why, if you notice Bush, he didn't care. You know, we just tore up a town. So what? That's right. You know, it was yep. target practice for our new weapon here, you know. That's basically what that was all about. I remember going through many hurricanes in my life, and especially Hurricane Andrew back in 92 when I was living in South Florida. But yeah. Hurricane Katrina was another story. The loss of life was enormous. Was Hurricane Katrina perhaps not created but altered and directed to our New Orleans to trigger? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it was not created. I think they, they could have picked any old hurricane. It just happened to be the one that had a good solar uh, a good solar sunspot. They re were redirecting it to a destination of their choosing, in this case, New Orleans. Do you think it was practice for martial law? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't. I think martial law was part of it, but I think the bigger picture was uh, practice for, you know, for uh, weather warfare. I mean, that's to me what it was really all about. And really getting a chance, because what happens is um, with these sunspots, <coughs> excuse me, they have up on what's called the E-layer, of the, uh, which is about 5,000 miles above the surface of the Earth, uh, comes in to the E-layer from the Van Allen radiation belt, Mm -hmm. And you have these, what they call, sporadic layers and, and sporadic sunspot activities. And so it just so happened that there was a sporadic sunspot layer going on at the same time as the hurricane, and they were able to connect the two electronically. If they hadn't had that sporadic E-layer, 
you know, activity, I don't think they could have really done what they did with that hurricane. They might have had some effect on it. But here they had the sun working directly with them. I mean, directly with them. There was no if, ands, or buts um, as to what they were doing, I, I, I feel anyway. Do you remember back in, during September the 11th, a, a hurricane hardly ever goes all the way up to New York and the West Atlantic. But there was a hurricane staying, very stationary during September the 11th, as if it was positioned there to blow away the winds Hello? after the collapse. Can you hear me? Hello? Oh, we guess we lost our sound again here. No, can you hear me? Dr. Bell? Dr. Bell. Oh, no. This is another Dr. Mitchell moment. Let me call you right back. Hello? Dr. Bell. Yeah, your phone dropped out again. I got to tell you, I have never gone through this before. Only one time I was talking to Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and I asked him a very peculiar question about NASA, and we got disconnected. That's the only time I have ever gotten disconnected. And it's strange that some of the stuff we're talking about seems to be touchy to some people. I don't know what's happening, but let's proceed. I was saying that during September the 11th, there was a hurricane that made it all the way up to east of New York, and it was staying there for a considerable amount of time as if it was there for a reason to blow the winds after the collapse of the towers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I remember the hurricane quite well, as I remember it was off the coast of New Jersey. It was kind yes. of hovering there, and they didn't know if it was going to come inland or not, seeing that the... Uh, uh, the, the, the World Trade Center was a false flag uh, operation. Uh, it might have it might have been a distraction, or it could have been a coincidence. Something like that. I, I don't have direct input. Nobody ever talked about it. None of my people ever mentioned it. So, so I really wouldn't be able to answer that truthfully. Sure, Dr. Bell. Let's not forget that Presidential Directive Fifty One gives the President Bush and now Obama dictatorial powers over the states, counties, municipalities, and territories. And a national emergency can trigger it. What's a national emergency? Anything. Swine flu, hurricane, etc. What are your thoughts on the possibility of this directive being implemented in the near future? Well, they're, they're going to have to. It, it's a little early because they're really not set up to implement it for several reasons. One, the population's not going to accept it yet. Uh, they're still back in the phase of taking everybody's pocketbook away from them. And uh -huh. there's not a big enough panic. And, and, and they're going to have to get over that panic and, and, and get more government banking and government control of institutions and companies, et cetera, before they try to do something really serious. So they're still playing around. Um, if you look at um, uh, how the swine flu is playing out, the Galan Corporation is the one that developed it um, uh, in the first place, the Tammy flu. And if you look at the stocks uh, in 1992, there was about five bucks. And it's uh, it's uh, GILD on the Nasdaq. GILD on the Nasdaq. If you look at the uh, stocks back then, there were just a few dollars a share. And then in '76, when Rumsfeld tried to pull it off the first time with the swine flu, they they shot up quite a ways. But this time around, um, when they uh, launched it down in uh, where is it? Where is it? it was New Mexico? Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, Veracruz. They launched, they took it down there and let it go. And then they started hyping it. They got the media behind them a little bit more. Uh, they got the stocks all the way from 35 to $47 a share. So that's kind of the level that they're playing on right now. Remember, Rumsfeld has 5 million shares. So he made probably about $15 million off of that so far. So I would, and then there's two other guys that are involved. Um, 
And and so as a result of that, these guys made a killing. And uh, so this they'll let this will die down, and then and then uh, and you know more people die from the, the from the vaccination than the vi- the virus. Exactly. So they'll, they'll let it die down, and they'll try it again. That's where they're at right now. They're not really into. You know, saying if you don't take the vaccine, we're going to throw you in an internment camp. Exactly. And I keep talking about that last year alone, we lost 30,000 lives from the regular flu and 13,000 lives through uh, tuberculosis. So the overblown swine flu, which, by the way, all of a sudden it disappeared from the mainstream media. I realize that you work with Dr. Len Horowitz, and he's talked about this a lot. What are your thoughts on this swine flu? I'm not a physician, but can a four-strain virus make it via natural selection? Well, not really. when you build a virus like this, it has to cross um, cross gender, you know, or, you know, a, you know, species rather. Right. For example, <clears throat> when they they when they made the HIV virus and launched it through the uh, 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 in 1979 over in San Francisco through the hepatitis B uh, vaccine, uh, w- w- what they had done is they taken a sheep Vishnu virus, which was a uh, if I remember correctly, it was a virus that uh, in sheep uh, killed and wiped their immune system out and a cattle bovine virus, which in cows gave them pneumonia. So what happens when they crossed, they crossed it into the human world, which was done over at Langley in 1975, and it, that, by the way, started with Hitler in 1938. I forget mm-hmm. what project, but he's the one who started that exact one. And, um, and so uh, it, it was... It, it, um, when people get it, the first thing that happens is it takes the immune system down, which is the sheep characteristic, and then they eventually die of pneumonia, which is the cow characteristic. So I don't, I haven't seen the genetics. Probably Horowitz has, and he's talked about it. I, I haven't really studied. I've been too busy working on this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen the genetics of of the symptoms of the two of what of what in the pig that they actually, you know, what part of the pig uh, system. Uh, you know, symptoms of the pig system that they actually transferred into the humans. Although I think that a couple of people that did die, they died of what? Pneumonia, right? I think that's, if I remember correctly, I haven't followed. That's exactly these. right. Yeah, and so, so that, that, that reeks of, of probably the swine is probably that the pigs die of pneumonia, you know? And so all they have to do now is jump it over to the human and they don't have to worry about the immune system because it's not the way that, that particular virus works. Now, Dr. Bell, we're coming to the uh, top of the hour, and uh, I want to say this before we take a break, because the the upcoming segment is going to be more, it's going to be deep, and a lot of stuff we're going to be discussing with our members. And uh, before I start getting into deeper subjects, let me share with the audience the fact that I found a reference letter from 1968 from you, from when you worked at Lockheed. Actually, you were leaving Lockheed at the time, and they gave you this letter, which has a paragraph that reads, quote, If you had access to U.S. government classified information during your employment, you are cautioned that disclosure of such information to unauthorized persons during or subsequent to your employment is prohibited by the Department of Defense regulations and contractual obligations, and it is punishable under the provisions of the federal criminal statutes. I say this because what I'm about to mention may fall inside or outside the boundaries, and it's up to you to discuss further. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back. But before I take a break, tell us more about your website, your new book, and your products. Well, we have the website is www.paradine.com, P-Y-R-A-D-Y-N-E. And you can look that up just by typing Dr. Fred Bell in the search engine. The phone number is 1-800-729-2603. 
We have a secondary membership website, which is raysoftruth.tv, and the products are over there. The, the nuclear receptor would be something you'd want to look at, and the holographic projector would be something that would be appropriate for what we're discussing to look at. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is Dr. Brian O'Leary, and you're listening to the Veritas Radio Show.